0: The scripture reading today is Matthew 5, 5 and Luke 1, 26 through 33, 38, 46 through 55. First, Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Luke 1, 26 through 33, 38, 46 through 55. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel And of his kingdom there will be no end and Mary said behold I am the slave of the Lord let it be to me according to your word and Mary said my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. These are the words of God. They are absolutely true, and they are given to us in love.
1: Um, Welcome, everybody, to Hope Chapel. I'm Harrison, one of the pastors here, and um, uh, thankful to be going through the Beatitudes with you guys and meditating on these. Um, Today's is, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Um, Thinking about this passage, I thought about Alexander the Great. Um, Alexander the Great lived in the 4th century B.C., was a king of the great kingdom of Macedon, and he's known for conquering most of the ancient world, two million square miles of land. This guy conquered over three different continents. Uh, He was described in history as a man with boundless ambition, pursuing his immortal glory above all else. He was extremely competitive, uh, doing everything he could to outdo the accomplishments of his father who was king before him. Um, he was really charismatic, uh, and he was a very self-assured kind of guy. Uh, so his mom had told him from a little, as a little kid that it was his destiny to conquer the Persian Empire. And as he reached his, des- his destiny, he began referring to himself as a god, um, this, a son of Zeus. Alexander the Great is the exact type of person that our world would say inherits the earth. A prideful, competitive, ambitious person And Alexander the Great quite literally inherited the the earth uh, for a minute until he died at age 33 of an unknown illness. So businesses, athletics, celebrities, uh, these kind of areas of our society are full of people like Alexander at the top, who believe the way to the top to inherit the earth is hard work, outdoing others through your own uh, power, ability, self-assurance, believing in yourself, and then finally reaching your destiny one day. Of being a a God among mortals. That's the world's map of success, how to inherit the earth. It's up here at the top. And yet uh, again like we saw in the other Beatitudes, here comes Jesus sitting down with his disciples and he tells them the eight Beatitudes, blessed are these people, blessed are these people, and in doing so he takes their map and he turns it right upside down. He says actually you know it's the meek that are gonna inherit the earth uh, up here. See here? So this statement for them and, and for us should be pretty shocking. It goes against our, our map, our typical understanding of things. And so first let's ask, what is meekness? What does Jesus mean? It's not a word that uh, you've probably used this week talking to other people. Um, what is meekness? Uh, scholars would say meekness is actually the outworking of the first two Beatitudes that we've looked at. Um, so imagine a person who, who views themselves as our first two Beatitudes. Someone who's first sees themselves as, as poor in spirit, uh, dirt poor, meaning I, on my own, spiritually have nothing. I'm a sinner. I can offer nothing to you or anyone else. I, I am owed nothing from God. I have lost my rights before God. I'm, I'm broke spiritually, and I'm in need of grace. That person, naturally, you can imagine, would also mourn a lot. Uh, their own poverty, their own sin, the ways that they're constantly hurting other people. I'm so sorry. It breaks my heart that my spiritual poverty is hurting you in this way. My my wickedness is overwhelming to me. Imagine this person, spiritually poor, mournful, would also act towards others in a way that is meek. Meaning, meek meaning, there would not be any pride there at all for this person, right? No ambition to be seen as above anyone else. No defensiveness or contending for themselves when somebody else uh, confronts them about something or rebukes them or critiques them. Um, There would be uh, no offense taken often for a person like that. It's like, look at who I am. Um, What am I going to be offended about? Um, They would be the chief owner of their own sin to others, the first to name their sin for what it was. And um, of course it's sin. I can't help but sin all the time. I'm broke. They would also be meek in terms of uh, their gentleness. Towards others, their patience with others. Even when others are sinning against them, they might say, of course you got angry with me. I get angry all the time for so much less than that. Um, they would be meek in terms of their words. They'd be quiet a lot. They don't feel like they need to take up all the space in a room uh, with their words because they're not wise in their own eyes. They would be humble. They'd be teachable. They'd be asking a lot of questions, constantly viewing others as more significant than themselves. In fact, they really wouldn't be thinking about themselves much at all as they went about their lives. Humble, small, non-defensive, gentle, this is what the Bible defines meekness as. And Jesus says, in a world of Alexander the Greats, mark this person. Mark the young, poor girl in an unknown town of Nazareth who thinks nothing of herself. That person is gonna inherit the earth. That person's going places. This beatitude is a, is a quote from a psalm, uh, Psalm 37, that has a theme of meekness throughout it. And, and the psalm describes a world full of people like Alexander the Great, people that are prideful, ambitious, that take over the world through uh, questionable means, that use their power to oppress the poor for their own gain. And the psalm speaks to the meek and lowly who are suffering in that system. And it says, Do not fret because of these evildoers, don't be envious. Don't be filled with wrath and anger. Continue to be meek because the Lord loves justice. That's what it says. Don't contend for yourself, but be still and wait and God will give you the desires of your heart. And the refrain that's repeated throughout the Psalm is the meek will inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. So Jesus is just restating this truth in the Beatitudes, but it's a different moment. In Psalm 37, now it's the turn of the tide when God has come to earth. The meek are on the cusp of finally truly inheriting the earth and the universe. Because the kingdom of heaven is here and its king is here. So this morning, I want to look at three examples that illustrate this beatitude for us. They illustrate the nature of true meekness and how that meekness does find favor with God and does inherit the earth. Uh, these are examples for us to meditate on and to pray to God to help us in our, in our pride to become uh, meek. So there's, the first one is the humility of Mary, uh, which was the passage was read for you um, this morning. And the second is the forbearance of Moses. And the third is the gentleness of Jesus. So we've got Mary, Moses, and Jesus and three different parts of meekness that, that they display. And I just need to say from the beginning, Moses and Mary, they're far from perfect people very much sinners like you and me. They do display uh, clearly what the Bible, what Jesus is referring to as meekness, as sinners here. Um, we're going to do well to pay attention to them. But also Jesus ultimately is the best display of meekness, uh, a whole different level given who he really is as God. So we're going to look at those three people. Um, but before we dive in, let me, let me pray for us. Um, Father, this is... Um, all these Beatitudes feel counterintuitive, but this one feels the most uh, counterintuitive. The, the one that goes against our experience of the world so much. Um, Lord, we um, want to, to see your map clearly. We want to follow your map towards Shalom um, when our whole world is going the opposite direction. And so would you help us this morning to do that? Give us your eyes to see clearly um, the beauty of meekness and, and how and why you favor it, Lord. And help us uh, more than that, Lord, than just seeing it. Help us to walk into that as a church. Help us to be a church of nobodies. Um, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first, we're going to look at the humility of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, So, uh, as Maria read for you guys, the angel, um, when the angel comes to Mary to tell Mary about Jesus coming, Um, This story emphasizes Mary's meekness as a person in a number of ways. Um, First, she lives in a place that's totally unknown to anyone up until this story. Like you guys know Nazareth really well because of this story. But at the time, um, this does not, she doesn't live in Raleigh or Charlotte or Greensboro. Um, She lives in Snow Camp, North Carolina. All right, that's where she lives. Where is that? It's in the middle of nowhere. I found it on the map. Um, Southeast of Greensboro. Scholars think Mary of Snow Camp, North Carolina is about 15 years old probably at this time. She's a teenage child. And look with me in verse 28 of this passage. The angel shows up and he says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. So they might greet each other, the Lord be with you. And this is the, it says the Lord is with you. Um, and it says Mary's troubled. But it, it's a unique version of trouble because she's not troubled at the angel, angel's appearance. Uh, but notice it's at the angel's words. She's troubled at the saying. She's trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So she's troubled by you. Wait. Favored by God? Me? The Lord right now is with me? Mary? That can't be. Like this must just be some sort of greeting that you're, that you're using. That can't be. That's her reasoning. That's why she's troubled. And the angel clarifies again, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And then he tells her that you're gonna bear in the womb the Son of God, who will rule forever. And she responds with incredible faith, even more than this is contrasted with Zechariah, a righteous priest who had responded a different way. But she responds with faith, says, behold, I'm, I'm a slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And Mary's meekness here is described by our word of humility. She is a no one and she knows that she's a no one. Um, how could God favor me? She doesn't respond with, of course you chose me. I mean, I've, I've had that feeling all along. I'm, I'm pretty special. I, I deserve this. Finally, others are going to see me for who I've known all along that I really am. Instead, it's favored what? Me? She has no expectations from God. She has no rights before God that she's trying to stand on. She ends with, okay, I'm a slave for God. I trust you. And she gives an amazing praise of of this moment in, in verse 46. Look at 46 through 54. It says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant." Meaning she's looked on the humble estate. I'm a little person. I'm a nobody compared to everyone else in this world. And behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now this is the same word from the, the beatitude that we're reading. Blessed meaning favored by God. And Elizabeth had right before this told Mary, Blessed are you among all women. Because God has chosen you in your womb to bear this child. In verse 49, for he who is... Mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him. Implied is his mercy is not for the great of this world. It's for those who fear the Lord no matter how small. From generation to, gener- to generation he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So because of the Lord, Mary goes from a nobody young girl in Nazareth to the most favored of all women. Someone we remember and love 2,000 years later as the mother who raised the Savior of the world. And Mary in this passage sees her trajectory from humble to exalted as Israel's trajectory. Israel at this time is a small, poor remnant, oppressed by Rome, oppressed by their own religious leaders. Yet there's a remnant who meekly waits on the Lord for their deliverance. And Mary is one of those people. And Jesus says the meek, those who are, it is those who are going to receive God's favor, it's those who are going to inherit the earth. It's not going to be Herod, it's not going to be Pilate, it's not going to be Caesar, it's going to be little Mary of Snow Camp, North Carolina. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien brings this humble meekness to life in a particular species that he has in Lord of the Rings, uh, and they're called the hobbits. Hobbits were a lot shorter physically than men or elves or orcs. Uh, They're a lot weaker than dwarves who were also short. And hobbits were seemingly of no consequence on the stage of Middle-earth. There are all these big battles between good and evil for uh, dominion over the land. Uh, And in the midst of that, no one really notices these little creatures. Everyone except Gandalf, uh, a wise wizard who has a sense that hobbits are these amazing little creatures. They're good-hearted. They're capable of so much more than everyone gives them credit for, and they might play a crucial role in the outcome of the battle for good and evil. And if you know Tolkien's uh, story, it's hobbits who were chosen for the hardest and most important task of taking the ring of power to be destroyed in the evil land of Mordor. It was hobbits who were the only ones with the humility and smallness needed for that task. They were the only ones with the smallness that meant they wouldn't be immediately corrupted by the ring of power. They were the only ones who wouldn't be spotted by Sauron who didn't think about them at all. Sauron's the big bad guy. They go in right underneath his nose. Their meekness in the story is their greatest strength. So, hobbits are the fantastical version of what we see here in Mary. God chose a teenage girl from Nazareth to carry the Son of God in her womb because she had the smallness and humility needed for such a task. And I wonder, do you see yourself like Mary sees herself, as a little hobbit of no consequence to anyone? How important might you consider yourself on God's stage of the world? If an angel appeared to you and said, hey, God shows you favor, is your, would your reaction be shock? I'm a nobody. How could that be? Or instead, would you feel like you're, I'm a somebody who might deserve some favor? I might deserve some more tasks and some more power and some more consequence in this world. Finally, someone's seeing me for who I really am. Another way to consider... Humility, this sort of humility, is how much time do you spend thinking about the importance and specialness of others in your life? Compared to the amount of time you spend thinking about your own specialness and how that's yet to be discovered by everyone around you. Jesus tells us, blessed are the meek. And if we hope to inherit the earth, we have to become small. Jesus says, like little children, you must become a church of little children, of nobodies. Who look up to everyone around us and only the Holy Spirit can bring us there. So that's the first example is, is the meekness and humility of Mary. Second example I want to share with you is, is the forbearance of Moses. Moses is crucial in this discussion of meekness because the whole testament calls him the meekest man of all the people on the face of the earth. It does so in a story uh, in Numbers 12, when his meekness is especially on display. And Moses led uh, the people of Israel out of Egypt, if you remember, through the wilderness to the Promised Land. And um, even though he was God's appointed leader, his, his power and his, his role is questioned often by people um, that, that are under him. And, and in this story, it's Miriam and Aaron, uh, Moses' is number two and number three, who make a, a move to grab power from him. Um, They use some dirt. They have against him a a second marriage that he has to a foreigner. Um, And they kind of spread that word to everybody and then call his credentials into question and say, um, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Meaning Miriam and Aaron. Um, What they're saying is, uh, shouldn't, I mean, he's got this questionable stuff. Shouldn't we be the leaders, really, of all this stuff? God uses us too, right? Same way. When they say this, Uh, We get no response from Moses in this story. He's there. We don't hear a response. He doesn't defend himself or try to fight it. He doesn't try to explain away the concern uh, towards his marriage. He doesn't throw dirt back on them or try to grab the power back from them. Um, But rather, it's this very moment in the text that it just says, the man Moses was very meek, the meekest person on the face of the earth. But then it says, but the Lord heard it, uh, meaning their challenge. Uh, They're speaking against Moses and the God in his presence then appears in a tornado and calls Miriam and Aaron forward. And God says, hear my words. There's a prophet among you like you guys. I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. It's not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, it says, and he departed. And when he departs, Miriam is struck with leprosy immediately. It says her skin becomes like snow and her skin is half eaten away. And guess what Moses does at this point? Meek Moses, when he sees Miriam, he becomes distraught and falls on the ground and pleads to the Lord to forgive Miriam. Oh God, heal her, please. And God agrees to do so after a week. Um, That's our second story of meekness on display in Scripture. Meekness in leadership and it's meekness in the form of Moses' forbearance. Forbearance uh, can be defined as restraint from an action. Uh, It's self control in a hard situation. Legally it's when you restrain from exercising a legal right that you could exercise. Moses forbears in two ways. First, he doesn't contend for himself when they criticize his marriage or his position of power. He's non-offensive. You can imagine the meek person that I've been describing to you, a a meek person would would be thinking something like, I'm far from a perfect person. You guys make a great point, really. I'm, I'm definitely a sinner. There's nothing in myself that deserves this role at all. The Lord's the one who put me here purely by his grace. And so if he wants me to stay, I guess he can speak for me. He can speak into this and sort this out with us. So first, that's Moses' is non-defensive. He doesn't try and grab power back. Second, uh, he never stops caring for Aaron or Miriam despite the criticism and their coup for power. He restrains himself from being bitter or resentful at them. He never stops fighting for their good. And we know that because he breaks down and begs God to heal and forgive Miriam right when she gets punished for this. And that's right after she betrayed him. That's a picture of true meekness and leadership non-defensive and Moses caring for his sheep even when they're biting them, biting him. And Notice uh, Moses was favored by God, defended by God, blessed by God in the midst of that. God comes to his aid and and supports the role that God's given him. So I want to bring this to life a little bit. I think it's hard to, to see uh, the, ex- the extreme meekness of this. Um, imagine you yourself giving a leader that you know Uh, maybe your boss, if you have a boss, um, or just any leader, a boss you've had in your life, imagine giving them some pretty serious, constructive criticism. Uh, Have you ever done that before? Have you ever given somebody criticism before? Imagine doing that, but it's criticism on a very personal level. Something about his marriage and how that should disqualify him from his job. How how do you imagine your boss is going to receive that criticism? Does he receive it well? So imagine... First, he receives that with meek forbearance, he, meaning he doesn't get defensive. He doesn't say, what are you talking about? He doesn't dismiss you like, you don't know anything about me. What do you mean? He doesn't try to get back at you. What about, what about your marriage, you know? He, he receives it quietly. He listens and considers it. You feel no break in your relationship with him. And you realize he's totally for you as a person, for your good. It feels like pretty nice, right? That might be pretty rare in the workplace these days. Let's go a step further. Now imagine that you're giving that constructive criticism, but your criticism is dead wrong in God's eyes. That this, this does not disqualify him, your boss, from his job. Um, and so uh, also imagine as you're giving it, so it's you're dead wrong, and uh, you have underlying motives for your criticism. You just want your boss's job, and you're mainly critiquing him uh, to undermine him. And you're doing that in front of everybody. And so imagine deeply personal criticism. You're dead wrong about it. You don't care about your boss. You just want his job. And then number four, that's pretty evident to your boss who's not an idiot. Okay. This is the scenario that we have with Moses. How does that confrontation go with your boss? Now imagine your boss in that scenario receiving your criticism with the same forbearance, even still, no defensiveness, no anger. No retaliation or cutting remarks to get back at you no dismissiveness he says hey you're right i'm not anything i'm a sinner i don't deserve this job more than you in and of myself i don't deserve anything god i guess god can or someone else can help us sort this out and all the while your boss remains for you as a person totally for you and for your good he's saying stuff like if this comes out i really don't want you to lose your job like let's try and figure out what went wrong here and how we can help things go better like i don't want you to suffer anything from this I wonder, have you ever met somebody like that? That's the the, the forbearance that we see in Moses and that's why he's the meekest person on the face of the earth. And I wonder if you can imagine a person like that, what would it be like to work for someone like that? What would it be like to do conflict at work with someone like that? What might it be like to be married to a person like that? Or to be the child of a person like this? What would it be like to be in a political conversation with somebody like that? Or to be the the neighbor or friend or in a community group with someone who is actually meek like that? That no matter the circumstances, no matter how hurt they were, they would hear you, they would see you, they would respond thoughtfully and patiently and lovingly and repentantly to you, even regardless of your sinful motives or whether you're right or wrong. I think that person would be a huge gift, right? And the key is, the Holy Spirit can make you that sort of meek person to those around you. And he can do so today. You can become that gift in Jesus to others. We can actually lead in our circles with that kind of meekness and forbearance that we see in Moses. C.S. Lewis has a quote, the self is not worth defending. (laughs) Self is not worth defending. So that's our second example is the forbearance of Moses and first we saw the humility of Mary and then lastly the gentleness of Jesus. So like I said before, Jesus's meekness is on a whole different level from Mary or Moses or us. This is because Jesus is the only person who has the right to not be meek towards others. Think about it. Mary is actually small, right? You and I are actually nothing on the scale of the universe. Jesus is the king of the universe. Everything was made through him. He is the only one who is something, right? He doesn't have to be meek. Also, number two, uh, you and I are actually spiritually poor. But is Jesus spiritually poor? No. He's the only one who in and of himself literally is spiritually perfect, even as a human being under the hardest temptation from Satan. Perfect. He's filthy rich spiritually. And Jesus is the one also, number three, who has to come and suffer and die and go through hell because of our sins? He has every right to be pissed at you, right? To not be meek with you at all. To show up here with harshness and power and to rectify all this stuff. And yet, how do we see him come? Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, meek, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the fowl of a beast of burden. Donkeys for them symbolized humility and they symbolized peace. A king riding a donkey and not a horse was a humble king and he was definitely not going to war. Um, He was not going to harshness. He was coming humbly for peace. And this is Jesus. He was born to a 15-year-old Mary in Snow Camp, North Carolina. A carpenter's son with no beauty or appearance that you would mark. He chose to become small. And how did he treat us when he arrived? Isaiah gives us two kind of encompassing images that explain Jesus's interactions with people and Isaiah says a bruised reed he will not break a faintly burning wick he will not quench. First image is of a reed. You can imagine is already bruised and cracked a little bit. Um, That's your life. You're on your knees. You're broken by your own sin and the sin of others. You're waiting destruction. You're miserable. Second image is of a candle. The candle of your life and your soul is about to go out. It's burned all the way down. Your sins overwhelmed you. It's melted down to almost nothing. It flickers once for the last time. And this is what Jesus sees when he arrives. There's a bunch of bruised reeds and faintly burning wicks. And Isaiah says he's not going to break that reed or quench that candle. He will, with compassion, with tears, gently take them in his hand, care with them with every fiber of his being, and nurse them back to life and the reed will be whole again. The candle will burn again and become a fire. That's the gentleness and meekness of Jesus. This is exactly what you see when you read about his encounters with people in the Gospels. The woman at the well. The woman caught in adultery about to be stoned. The woman washing his feet with her tears and her hair. Matthew the tax collector sitting in his booth in his shame and guilt. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Even the Pharisees, Jesus reasons with them over and over and over again. Even Pontius Pilate, even Judas Iscariot, who Jesus knows will betray him, are treated gently by Jesus. In this very Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is nursing back to life the faintly burning wicks listening in. If you are poor in spirit, if you are mourning, if you are meek, you are favored by God right now. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. See him bringing them back to life. Come to me, he says, I'm here for you. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and with me you will find rest for your souls. That's the gentleness of our Savior Jesus towards us. And this means two things for us. First one today is what better place do you have to go with your sins, into to a guy like this. If you are a broken reed today, if your wick is about to go out today, if you feel that you are a nobody on this earth, spiritually poor and mourning your sins, then I've got a person for you. His name is Jesus. You can go to him and he will not crush you. He will be meek and gentle to take you in his hands and bring you back to life. Might you take yourself to him today? The second outworking is because Jesus is meek and gentle with us and we are to be meek and gentle with others. We must not crush the broken reeds and the faintly burning wicks in our midst. We must remember that Jesus didn't crush us. And now notice from, from the gospel, Jesus' gentleness here is not opposed to him speaking truth to other people. It's not opposed to him calling out sin. It's not opposed to him calling people to repentance. He does that over and over again, but it's the way that he does it. He's extremely gentle in how he goes about speaking that truth. And that gentleness is what we are to have with our brothers and sisters who are broken. So those are the three examples of meekness. The humility of Mary, forbearance of Moses, and the gentleness of Jesus. These are qualities that God loves and shows favor to. And those are the kinds of people that are going to be with Jesus in his kingdom. So as we end, Holy Spirit, help us to become small. Help us to become like little children this week. Um, Help us to find you, Jesus, and help
0: us to inherit the earth. Amen.